Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're going to start off with a recipe from smittenkitchen.com. This one for charred eggplant and walnut pesto pasta salad. Pasta salads get a bad rap, but I find that the more I think of them as room temperature summer dishes and the less as mayo-slicked bowls of suspicion and dread, the more inviting they become. Not only for cookouts and picnics, but <clears throat> a gorgeous Tuesday night. Two things help a lot. First, I start with a salad that we've loved and build it from there. We talked about this walnut pesto for the first time way back in 2009. It's from Jody Williams and it's a longtime staple on Crostini at the Shoebox Wine Bar Grotino in the West Village. Don't be put off by its unassuming appearance. This combination of toasted walnuts, olive oil, thyme, parmesan, and a dab of minced sun-dried tomatoes is a triumph of flavor. I'm not surprised Frank Bruni once called it one of the best crostini in town and likened it to crunchy peanut butter for grown-ups. But oh, I think it's even better. Next, a grilled or roasted vegetable really helps make a pasta salad into a great lunch or dinner dish and doesn't have the aggressive crunch of raw ones. The summer months are teeming with great produce. We should take advantage. I also find that the more exceptional the vegetable, the more you can dial back the proportion pasta, should you and carbs be wary of each other right now. It's a little early for eggplant. I was impatient, but you could just as easily use grilled or roasted zucchini or summer squash, red pepper, or even the last of the skinny asparagus. Finally, this just might be just me, but my favorite thing is going to a store with a great selection of pasta shapes and picking something funky. The best kind here will be short and easily stabbed with a fork and have pockets where the nubby bits of walnut nirvana can hide out. I use Sitaro's Organietti, but other brands call it Radiatore. And then take it outside somewhere. Pasta salad is for plates on your lap, picnic benches, and plastic cups with condensation down the inside or the outside. <laughs> so here we go. Charred eggplant and walnut pesto pasta salad. It serves three to four as a light meal. Double it for a party. Takes 30 minutes. Source, the walnut pesto is adapted from Jody Williams. For the assembly, you're gonna need salt, one half pound of pasta. Again, I use Sitaro's organ, Organietti, but other radiatory shapes are great here. Additional olive oil. One medium eggplant, about a pound. Freshly ground black pepper. Additional sherry or red wine vinegar. Two ounces of ricotta salada, crumbled. Two tablespoons of chopped flat leaf parsley or basil. And for the dressing, three quarters cups of walnuts, toasted and cooled first for the best flavor. Three tablespoons of grated Parmesan cheese. One small garlic clove, peeled two sprigs of thyme, cleaned, salt, two teaspoons of sherry vinegar, plus more at the end, one quarter cup of olive oil, plus more at the end, and two tablespoons, about three, of minced sun-dried tomatoes, oil or dry-packed will both work. 
freshly ground black pepper and or red pepper flakes. You're going to cook the pasta in a very well salted uh, water until one to two minutes before doneness and drain. Prepare the eggplant. You're going to trim the eggplant and slice into one half inch coins. Brush both sides with olive oil. And sprinkle salt with and freshly ground back black pepper. Um, you're going to heat the grill to medium high and arrange the eggplant in one layer and cook until charred underneath, about eight minutes. If it's sticking to the grill, it wants to cook longer. That's always true. Flip pieces over and cook until charred on second side, about five to eight minutes more. Set aside to cool slightly and then chop into chunks. No grill? Heat your oven to 425 degrees. Trim eggplant and slice into one half inch coins. Coat a baking sheet generously with olive oil. Arrange eggplant on the top and sprinkle with salt and pepper. Roast without disturbing for about 15 to 20 minutes. Carefully flip each piece. The underside should be blistery, dark, and a bit puffy and should release easily. If they don't want to, then just cook them a few minutes longer. Flip each piece, sprinkle again with salt and pepper, and roast on the second side for 10 to 12 minutes or until charred underneath again. Make dressing. You're gonna, in a food processor, you're gonna coarsely grind the walnuts, cheese, garlic, thyme, salt, and freshly ground black pepper and or red pepper flakes. And then stir in oil and tomatoes and then whisk in the vinegar to taste. Then to assemble the salad, you're gonna to toss the cooked pasta with the walnut dressing and additional vinegar and oil to loosen. I used about one tablespoon of extra um, oil and two tablespoons of extra vinegar in total. Then you're gonna chop the eggplant into chunks, add to the bowl, and toss again. Adjust the seasonings to taste, and then stir in the cheese and herbs. Our next recipe is for chicken chili. Though I am firmly of the belief that the internet needs another recipe for chicken crockpot chili, like your groggy narrator needs another morning of her mini humans rousing her before 6 a.m., when I went to make my own one night, I was dissatisfied with what I found. It wasn't because recipes out there weren't good or well-reviewed, and certainly not because they hadn't made countless other people out there content at mealtimes, but because they weren't what I was looking for. And well, as that's how we got here in the first place, it seems appropriate enough to step into the year 2016, the year that this website turns 10, not fighting this at all. While I'm hardly aspiring towards the Texas gold standard of chili con carne, chunks of beef, lots of chilies, and foot-long, no beans, I think there's something to a fairly straightforward, excellently seasoned chili. I could overlook the instant tapioca, jars of salsa, cinnamon, chocolate, onion powder, garlic powder, taco seasoning mix, and celery on the front page of Google's results that might be someone's thing, just not mine. But I kept getting stuck on one point. If we're going to run the slow cooker for 5 or 10 hours or simmer a chili on the stove for 3, why start with canned beans? Dried beans are more economical, they're more flavorful, and will plump up splendidly in either of those cooking times without any pre-soaking nonsense. That's a good tip there, Deb. 
So I had to fiddle up my own recipe. I made a hasty pot of chicken chili in the hazy newborn days this summer because I hadn't then or now shaken this obsessive need to only consume meals that can be eaten on with tortillas. And everyone declared it the best dinner in a long time. I hadn't expected this. It was food for convenience, for ease. Mustn't it then taste like compromise? The leftovers were grand too, and from there I couldn't stop. When my husband had to go to Germany for work in November, and I was quietly freaking out over how I was going to single parent when I'm barely cut out for co-parenting most days, I set up another pot, and boom, two nights of wholesome dinner were set. I made it a few weeks ago when, chick when Thanksgiving pies were weighing heavily on our midsections, and I made it again yesterday when we finished off the weekend's potato kugel and baked Lorrainish omelet. And oh, God, don't even find out how good these are. They're just going to ruin everything. Sticky bun brunch. And we're, at last, all set on butter and cream for a while. Did you hear that? Eight times we've had this in two months. And we're not even tired of it yet. So I hope you find this equally worthy of repetition. Chicken chili. Here's the recipe. Uh, servings. It's served six generously eight in more moderate portions, i.e. what you see above, which is more like in a cup. Um, time, two hours and 30 minutes, and the source is bon appetit. Psst. There's a vegetarian three-bean chili in the archives, and there's a link on smittenkitchen.com. You're going to need two pounds of boneless, skinless chicken parts cut into three to four large chunks I use a 50-50 mix of breasts and thighs, one small yellow onion, chopped small, two large garlic cloves, minced, one tablespoon of ground cumin, one and a half teaspoons of dried oregano, two teaspoons of fine sea salt. You're going to heat via one to two jalapenos or other fresh hot pepper, minced, or a ground chili powder of your choice to taste. One 28-ounce can of crushed tomatoes, fire-roasted if you can find them, or two 10-ounce cans of Rotel. The yield is little less, but not noticeably in the final, not noticeable in the final chili. Two and two-thirds cups of small dried beans. I use half black beans, half small red beans. I do not pre-soak, but I do read the updated note on top and the note at the bottom if you're using kidney beans. We'll get to that. Five and a third cups of water. You can replace all or, or part with broth. To serve, you're going to need lime wedges, sour cream or Mexican crema, finely chopped white onion or thinly sliced scallion, chopped cilantro, corn or flour tortilla chips, and hot sauce. I have always wanted to write recipe instructions just like this. Throw everything in the pot and turn the heat on. On the stove, you're going to simmer the ingredients on low until the beans are tender, about two and a half to three hours. Stir occasionally. In a slow cooker, you're going to be on high for four and a half to five hours or on low for eight to ten. In an instant pot or electric pressure cooker, at high pressure for 30 minutes, manual release works just fine. This is the cooking time for small beans, small red and regular black beans, which are small. If you're using beans that are larger, you might need 35 minutes. To finish, the chicken will likely have fallen apart, but you can help it along by reaching into the pot with two forks and shredding it to your desired texture. 
For a pressure cooker, this is barely necessary. You can break up the chicken with the back of a spoon. Taste and adjust seasonings and serve with fixings of your choice. P.S. We like this with baked tortilla chips. I estimate that two small corn, tias, small corn tortillas per person and cut them into eight wedges. Brush a large baking sheet lightly with olive oil and arrange the tortilla wedges in one layer and then lightly dab the tops with more olive oil and sprinkle with fine salt. Bake at 350 for 10 minutes. Check for color and add more baking time as needed until they're golden and crisp. As far as troubleshooting, it sounds like some people are having trouble getting their dried beans to cook in the suggested times. I'm so sorry for the trouble. I tested this with different beans, Rancho Gordo and also Goya brand, and in different slow cookers, an ancient one from Farberware and another one from Proctor Silex, and never had trouble. So I'm beginning to suspect that my slow cooker is more robust than others in heat. So this is a little consolation to those of you with crunchy beans. So to troubleshoot, if you're worried or have had trouble in the past getting dried beans to cook in a reasonable amount of time in your slow cooker, go ahead and soak them overnight first. But I want you to soak them in five and one-third cups of water and then use that water, which is now full of flavor, in the slow cooker. This will also allow you to have the right liquid level at the end since it will be impossible otherwise to know how much water your beans absorbed and adjust the recipe accordingly. So here's the note about kidney beans. I do not use kidney beans here but small red ones and I do not pre-soak my beans. However, if you are using red kidney beans, do keep in mind that due to protein known as here we go folks, phytohemoglutinin, the FDA advises people who wish to use kidney beans in slow cookers to first soak the beans for at least five hours dump the water, and then boil them in fresh water for 10 minutes, and then continue with the recipe. As your beans will have soaked up more liquid before they go in, you will find you need less to cook them in for the final chili. In terms of how freaked out you should be over kidney beans, from the FDA website, reports of this syndrome in the United States are anecdotal and have not been formally published, and that this is mostly concern reported in the last, in the 70s in the UK. And I, I will note that this um, this recipe is from a while ago, back in 2016. But it's always good to be careful. Next recipe. I'm torn. There's a couple different ones I want to do. I think I'm going to go with the goop.com recipe for cauliflower black bean scramble. It sounds delicious, and I have some cauliflower that needs to be used up. So a tip on this, you can add any leftover cooked veggies to this scramble. This egg alternative looks like the real thing thanks to a little dash of turmeric. It's super savory and the beans and avocado make it a filling breakfast, sure to keep you satiated through the 11 a.m. snack slump. <clears throat> so this serves one. You'll need one 15 ounce can of black beans, one half cup of water, two cups of cooked cauliflower, roasted takes taste best, three tablespoons of olive oil, one quarter teaspoon of turmeric powder, salt, two leaves of kale cut into ribbons, two leaves of Swiss chard, chard cut into ribbon, um, one half of an avocado sliced, one quarter cup of finely diced red onion, six sprigs of cilantro, and one lime wedge. First, in a small saucepan, you're going to heat the canned black beans with their canning liquid and water. Bring to a boil and then drain. 
In a large mixing bowl, you're going to mash the cauliflower with a potato masher. In a medium-sized saucepan, heat the olive oil over medium-high heat, and then add the mashed cauliflower and saute for one to two minutes until lightly browned. Add in the turmeric, salt, kale, and Swiss chard, and saute for another three to four minutes until well incorporated. Serve over the black beans with sliced avocado and red onion, and then garnish with cilantro, lime, and flaky sea salt. That sounds really yummy, and since eggs are in a shortage right now, that's maybe a good way to, to fill in. Our next recipe is for Irish soda bread scones. This recipe comes from Kitchen, Smitten Kitchen, so let's just get this out of the way from the get-go. Don't let the title fool you. There, this here is American soda bread. It has raisins, caraway seeds, butter, eggs, and even some sugar. It stales quickly, but not nearly as quickly as the authentic stuff, almost entirely comprised of flour, baking soda, and buttermilk. So, oh, and I would make the bread into tiny breads, and I liken them to scones. Like when I blasphemize a recipe, I like to go all the way, okay? So, now that we got what, uh, what they're not out of the way, let's talk about what they are. A triumph. All right, okay, some, something less dramatic. But briefly in my kitchen on Sunday morning, before heading out to an afternoon in the apparent floodlands of central Jersey, it sure felt like it. A month or so ago, I'd spied an Irish soda bread scone at Whole Foods that was fairly run-of-the-mill for a scone. Dry and uninteresting. Soda bread, really in name only. And I got to remembering how much I like the crackly coarse crust and plush interior of a good Irish soda bread. Not to mention that curiously addictive raisin caraway combo. And I knew there had to be a way to make these the way I believed that they ought to have been made at home. Of course, the way things are sputtering along my kitchen these days, it should have been no surprise that I didn't nail it on round one. An accidental extra egg and a halved recipe yielded muffins, spongy ones, or round two, convinced my standby would make excellent scones. Well, I was wrong. It was round three or bust for me on Sunday morning. I was running low on the comically large raisins I'd picked up, patience and inclination, as there were more entertaining things in my line of view. So I went for the kind of recipe that keeps its promises, the kind you often find in Cook's Illustrated. Sure enough, these breads were velvety within and craggy without. They had crust, and they had crumb, and they had me, armed with a pat of butter to face down, and I'm sorry, but they lost. So here's the recipe, Irish-American soda bread scones, adapted from Cook's Illustrated. I adapted the original recipes into mini breads that I like to call scones, but this recipe will also work as a whole loaf with a 40 to 45 minute cooking time. However, you do or do not divide them. Like all soda breads, you should plan to consume these on day one. On day one, they've got a craggy crust with a warm plush interior. They love butter and you love them. On day two, they have a density, especially when your big toe breaks their fall that could threaten your efforts to rein in your foul language that the tiny impressionable ears linger about. So this yields eight mini bread scones, in quotes, which are fairly hefty and can be split between two people. You'll need three cups of all-purpose flour plus additional for work surface, one cup of cake flour or make your own, and there's a recipe link at smittenkitchen.com. 
one quarter cup of granulated sugar, one and a half teaspoons of baking soda, one and a half teaspoons of cream of tartar, one teaspoon of table salt. This is two thirds of the original amount, which I found too salty. Five tablespoons of unsalted butter, or four tablespoons softened and one tablespoon melted. One and a quarter cups of buttermilk, or you can make your own, and there, again there's a link. One egg slightly beaten, one cup of currants or raisins, one tablespoon of caraway seeds. This, these are optional. You're going to heat your oven to 400 degrees with a rack in the middle, upper middle position. Whisk dry ingredients, the flours, the sugar, baking soda, cream of tartar, and salt in a large bowl. Then you're going to work the softened butter into the dry ingredients with a fork, pastry blender, or your fingertips until the flour mixture resembles coarse crumbs. Add the wet ingredients, the buttermilk and the egg, currants or raisins and caraway seeds if you're using them, and stir with a fork until the dough just begins to come together. Turn out onto a work service. CI says you need a floured one, but I didn't agree and knead until the dough just becomes cohesive and bumpy. You're not going for smooth dough here. CI warns that this will make it tough. Pat down into a round and use a knife or dough divider to cut into eight wedges. Form each wedge into a round and place on a parchment lined or greased baking sheet. Cut a cross shape onto the top of each. Bake for 15 to 20 minutes or until the internal temperature reaches 170 degrees. This is especially helpful in this recipe where doneness is hard to judge from the outside. The scone should be golden brown and a skewer should come out clean. Remove from the oven and brush with butter before cooling to room temperature and be sure to eat on day one. Our next recipe is for baked brie with garlic butter mushrooms. We're gonna just go for the recipe here from smittenkitchen.com. This serves two to four takes 45 minutes. Source, Smitten Kitchen. You'll need one pound of mushrooms, any kind. Here I'm using cremony and oyster. Two tablespoons of capers, drained and chopped. Three large garlic cloves, minced. Two tablespoons of vegetable oil. One teaspoon of kosher salt. I'm using diamond, so use half if you're using another, another brand. Freshly ground black pepper three tablespoons of cold unsalted butter cut into pieces, juice of half a lemon, one quarter cup of chopped flat leaf parsley, an eight ounce wheel of brie or camembert, a few sprigs of thyme, this is optional, and toasted baguette slices. You're gonna heat your oven to 450 degrees Fahrenheit. In a two quart baking dish, toss mushrooms with capers, garlic, oil, and salt, and many grinds of pepper. Dot with butter and toast, turning over once until mushrooms are more deeply brown and a bubbly garlic sauce begins to form below for 15 minutes. While the mushrooms roast, trim off the top of your brie with a sharp knife. It's totally edible, but it makes it easier to dip into when it's warm. Make space in the center of the mushrooms and nestle in the brie with the top and the top with thyme if you're using it. Return to the oven for 10 minutes until the brie is warm and loose adding more minutes if needed. Squeeze lemon juice and scatter parsley over mushrooms. Arrange the baguette slices around the brie and mushrooms, and then place a small spoon in the brie and a larger spoon in the mushrooms. 
Serve immediately, swooping the brie and scooping the mushrooms and their juices on the toasty bread. We've got some notes here. I usually use criminy mushrooms, but I had a few oyster mushrooms around and tore them in, and you should use whatever you have around. You didn't ask, but my favorite place to buy criminy shiitake and oyster mushrooms in New York City is the Bulich Mushroom Stand at the Union Square Green Market. They're usually on the north end on Wednesdays and Saturdays. The prices are reasonable and the quality impeccable each time. And yes, there are capers in here, and you're about to tell me you hate capers and ask what else you can use. I'd use anchovies. If you're about to tell me you don't like anchovies either, I'm going to suggest that you might not like briny things, and that's okay, you can skip it. Nobody has ever complained about mushrooms merely roasted in garlic butter, but I insist that the capers add an amazing nuance here. The mushroom portion of this dish is adapted from the late gourmet magazine. You can also find the garlic butter roasted mushrooms in the archives here. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.